0: salvation through the cross. Lord, would you help us to hear, truly hear what you have to say to us. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each one of us and give us new insight into who you are, new insight into the grace that you give. Lord, I pray that the words that I, would, that I speak would not be merely my words, but that you would speak through me this morning. Amen. About four or five years ago now, um, I got a letter in the post from the government saying, you are hereby called to do jury duty. And has it anyone here, hands up if you've done jury duty. It is, wow. Um, and it's interesting because as a pastor, I don't have to do jury duty. Uh, I can be exempt if I want to. But I got this letter and I thought, no, yeah, I'm, I'm going I'm to go and do jury duty. I want to experience what our legal system is like from the inside. And, and it was an incredible experience. Quite a big court case that, that I ended up sitting on. And, and, and just this experience of trying to get at the truth of the matter. Trying to see where guilt and innocence are divided. It, it, it was an incredibly humbling experience. Um, A very difficult experience. You really have somebody's future in your hands. That was four or five years ago. Last Thursday I I went along with with a mate of mine uh, to court. He'd done something silly and he had to go and stand before the magistrate. Uh, And the way smaller cases seem to work in our justice system is kind of like Judge Judy which I'm sure nobody watches. Everybody gets piled into the court, and one by one the bailiff calls out, blah-de-blah-de-blah, and the very timid person gets up, makes their way in front of everybody else, stands at a lectern underneath the judge's place. I'd forgotten until I went in on Thursday how intimidating a courtroom can seem. It's it's, it's almost designed to make you feel insignificant. Uh, You've got the judge on this very high platform and he literally looks down at the defendant. And and as one of the few people in the room who wasn't worried about going to prison for 60 years, I I could actually spend some time watching the people. And and it's just incredible the amount of, of nerves and adrenaline running through that room. It, it was, a, was a terrible feeling in the room. This morning, uh, we're, we're making our way together with Mark, closer and closer to Easter Sunday, to the resurrection of Jesus. And, and today we find ourselves with Mark watching two very different trials. We've got Jesus' so-called trial in the courtroom And we've got Peter's trial of public opinion in the courtyard. And I think that Mark means for us to look at Jesus' trial and Peter's trial together. Because he wants us to see how Jesus' faithfulness contrasts Peter's fickleness. Just a few hours before, we saw last uh, two weeks ago, Peter had this, this arrogant promise to Jesus that he said, I will never, ever, ever deny you. Even if it costs me my life, I will be true to you, Jesus. And then last week, Jesus was arrested and all the disciples, including Peter, scattered. And yet we're told here by Mark in, in chapter 14, verse 54, that Peter followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest's house. Maybe he was trying to live up to the promise that he'd made just a few hours before. I, I don't know. I suspect Peter wasn't really thinking at the moment. I, I think he was just so full of adrenaline and, and shock. He, he had to be near Jesus. But he didn't want to risk himself too much. Anyway, we'll come back to Peter in a minute uh, because Peter's trial is really there to highlight what happened to Jesus in the court. Peter's failure in the courtyard is there to highlight Jesus' grace in the courtroom. You know, compared to my experience of justice in Western Australia the trial that was held for Jesus here was such a totally, totally different animal. I mean, this was a kangaroo court. They they weren't even trying to see if he was innocent or whether he was guilty. They'd already decided the verdict. They'd already decided that Jesus must go, that he must be killed. And all they needed now was some plausible excuse that they could take to the Romans to get the deed done. Even the timing of the, of the court case just shows how dodgy it is. It's the middle of the night. Not only is that weird, it was also illegal according to the Jewish law. You weren't supposed to have trials then. But I suspect they didn't want to be interrupted. They wanted to do away with Jesus as quickly as possible. And yet, you know the thing that gets me in verse 55 is that despite a mass of, of people willing to perjure themselves, despite all the evidence so-called coming in, they couldn't find any evidence on which to execute Jesus. Even the false witnesses that they brought in didn't agree with themselves with each other. Mark tells us in verse 57 that that at one point a few blokes, a couple of blokes got up and they started spouting forth about how Jesus had said that he would destroy the temple and then raise it up in three days again. But again, says Mark, they couldn't agree on their stories and they got it wrong anyway. Uh, it comes from John chapter 2 where Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. Talking not of not of the physical temple in Jerusalem, but of his own life and and really saying, leaders, you kill me and I will be raised on the third day. But it's this particular charge about the temple that that really got old Caiaphas, the high priest, riled up. Because for the Jewish leaders of the day, the temple, those bricks and those stones, was the be-all and the end-all. I suspect they're largely motivated by what Jesus had done just a few chapters ago in chapter 11 when when He'd come and He'd cleared the temple. And He said, this is not what God intends. In fact, Mark tells us in Mark 11 that, that when Jesus cleared the temple, immediately on hearing, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes started trying to figure out how they could kill Him. And the chief priest, knowing this, knowing that knowing what Jesus had said, Verse sixty, goes up to Jesus, who has been quiet, unanswering, and says, Mate, don't you hear what they're saying? Tell me, are you going to do this? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Son of God Himself? Do you know the thing which which really amazes me about Jesus' trial here before the Sanhedrin is that really it is a panorama of God's grace. Remember, Marx already told us that this kangaroo court couldn't find any evidence on which to convict Jesus. All Jesus had to do to escape the cross was to keep his mouth shut, was to say nothing, no evidence, no excuse for the Romans, no execution. And yet, here is the grace of God. The high priest comes to Jesus and he says, Are you the Messiah? And Jesus himself gives them the testimony they need for his execution. Just take a look at what Jesus says. Verse um, 61, they, they ask him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus doesn't just say yes on the Messiah. He tells them what it means for Him to be the Messiah. Tells them how, how one day they would see Him come. In His power, in His might, coming on the clouds of heaven—that uh, that, that imagery comes from Daniel chapter seven, verse thirteen, where it, where it speaks of Jesus being crowned ruler over all things. That that kind of grace just blows me—that Jesus offers Himself up. You know, Caiaphas, the high priest, understood what Jesus was saying. He understood that Jesus was claiming to be God Himself. And straight away, without a thinking, without taking time to blink his eyes, Caiaphas assumes that Jesus is a liar. That He must be telling a porky. I mean, this is, this is a courtroom where finding the truth wasn't even a second, second thought. They'd already decided Jesus had to be killed. And as Jesus said, I am the Messiah, not for a second did they think, well maybe He might be. And I can't help but wonder whether whether any of those people in the room that night really believed there would ever be a Messiah. I mean, maybe it was a nice idea to them, a a good story, an encouraging idea. But I suspect it had ceased to be real for them. I mean, just think about what, what they're really saying. If you claim to be the Messiah obviously you're not. According to that logic, there is no room for God actually coming to save His people. You know, as I think about these people who have lost sight of God's goodness and God's coming, I wonder about us. I mean, Jesus has just just promised that that we will see Him come on the clouds of heaven. We'll see His return. Do we believe that? And I'm not talking believers in yet in my head. I'm talking about do we really believe it? Is it real for us or, or has it grown stale over the years? I think if anything these Jewish leaders teach us about the danger of letting our faith in Jesus and God atrophy and, and grow cold and stale. You know, if they'd really believed that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming, if they really expected God to send the Saviour, wouldn't they have been maybe willing to hear the possibility that when Jesus says, I am He, He really is. Anywho, by grace Jesus gives himself over to this court and in giving them the truth he gives them the excuse they need to have him taken and executed. And and this mockery of a trial ends with, with the mockery of Jesus with slaps to his face, with fists to his face, with spits, with taunts. let's go to Peter it's quite a cold night it's been chilly all night and I'm tired when I was in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus I was just so tired it took me to be with him and, and I just kept falling asleep couldn't keep my eyes open He wanted me there with Him, and I slept. And then we had this whole thing with Judas, and the soldiers came, and the guards. And I don't know, I guess I was confused, I was scared, I, 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 my, my heart was beating 19 to the dozen, I was worried, I was frightened. so many soldiers taking my Lord away. Anyway, I followed at a distance. You know, that's a tempting thing to do, isn't it? To just follow at a distance. That, that sort of half commitment, that, that sort of commitment that says, I want to follow you, I want to be close to you rather not let anyone find out. It's I was scared about what might happen to me. Scared about what they might say or do when they heard that I had been with Jesus. And I suspect I'm not the only one who's acted that way about Jesus before. You know, loving Him so much. Wanting to be near Him. But scared about what people would say and about how they would treat me. When Mark came to me to find out what he should write in his book, I didn't tell him this, but, but John managed to wrangle my way into the, the courtyard of the place where they were keeping Jesus. The house of the high priest. And as I said before, the night was rather nippy. It was maybe one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning by the time I got in there. Maybe it was the shock running through me. I don't know, but, but I was shivering. And There was a fire in the middle of the courtyard. And I hung around it, just, just trying to warm myself up a little bit. Trying to make myself inconspicuous. Because all around the fire are the guards Arrested Jesus. And up to the left a little bit, I could see the room with light spilling out of it where where they were dealing with Jesus. As I sat there in front of the fire warming my hands, there was a steady stream of, of people coming in and out of the courtyard. They'd come in of glee talking about how they were going to get Jesus. and Later they'd come out rather sad. Deflated. You know, for a moment there I had a spark of hope that, 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 that just maybe things were going well for Jesus in that room. That just maybe they wouldn't be able to, to kill him. It was only later that I heard the truth that, that Jesus had given himself up to them. who, as I sat there at the fire, watching and, and waiting for any sign of Jesus, one of the servant girls walked past. I, I guess I must have stood out as, as a bit of a stranger there because, because as she walked past, she slowed down a little bit and and she looked at me a little bit. You know, that, that sort of inquisitive look. You know that look a mother gives a child when she's caught the child doing something naughty? That's the sort of look I saw in her eye. A jolly light from the fire must have caught my face. and She'd recognized me as one of those who had been with Jesus, she came up to me, and not not too loudly, maybe the people next door could hear. Not many else, and she said, "You were with him, weren't you? You were with that Nazarene Jesus." What to do? I, I don't think too many people had heard what she'd said. You know, I wish I'd had the guts to say, yes, I am one of Jesus' friends. But I couldn't. You know, in a flash, I forgot that promise I'd made to Jesus that I would never deny Him. When the rubber hit the road, turns out that my faith just melted like ice on a hot day. The suspicions of a servant girl were, well, they were enough to make me deny that I even knew what she was talking about. And I got up and I moved away from her. And she followed. And this time she said it a bit louder. He's one of them! I mean, the guards were right there. The ones who arrested Jesus. What was I supposed to do? I I denied it. But even then my accent gave it away. The more I, I said I didn't know him, the more sure they became that I did know him. And they kept badgering me. Don't you know him? Aren't you one of his friends? Weren't you with him? You're from Galilee, aren't you? And in the end, desperate just to be left alone. I called down curses on myself. May God deal with me ever so severely. I do not know Him. You know, all Peter was accused of being was a follower of Jesus. He he was accused of being a Christian. And so afraid was he of the reaction that the truth might get that he denied Jesus not once but three times. Just the slightest touch of pressure. And and Peter caved in. Peter lies to save his own skin at the very moment that Jesus is telling the truth to save Peter's skin and our skin's. If you're anything like me, can't we identify with Peter out in the courtyard with, with that terrible mix of, of being loyal to Jesus and at the same time being loyal to self. Self-preservation even. We've got to remember the Gospel of Mark was written for, for Christians in Rome who, who were having a terribly tough time. If you're a Christian in Rome, well the authorities were out to get you. And yes, maybe, maybe our circumstances here today in Golden Bay, Western Australia, are not exactly the same as as those of the people Mark was writing to, maybe our circumstances are not the same exactly as Peter in the courtyard outside where Jesus was being tried. And yet we face the same trial as Peter faces. We face so often the same kind of of peer pressure even. Maybe we find ourselves in a group of people who, who think Christianity is ridiculous and Jesus a joke and we just keep quiet. We don't want to risk losing our friends. We don't want to risk those relationships which are so important to us. Or maybe we, we just don't want people to think us strange. I mean, if they knew that I was a Christian and goes to church on a Sunday, oof. You know, it's not unusual for us Christians to go to work and find after many years that, that one of our workmates has been a Christian all the time. And we only find out by accident because they don't advertise it We don't advertise that we're Christians. Because what would people think? Aren't there times when all we want to do is just blend in around the fire? I mean, yes, we want to be closest to Jesus. We want to be near, but just as long as that doesn't threaten my, my life or my lifestyle or my friendships or, or whatever. You know, Luke chapter 22 verse 61 adds a detail that Mark doesn't give us. He, he tells us that, that the moment the cock crowed twice, Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. Suspect he was probably being led across the courtyard to the holding cell. His face showing the blood and the cuts and the marks from where he's been hit and beaten and spat on. And he looks at Peter's face, the face which thanks to a few stumbling lies is pristine and beautiful. And Peter knew what he'd done and he knew that Jesus knew that he would, that he would do it. And he broke down and cried. You know, in Jesus' trial we see the grace of God. In Peter's trial we see the state of us. One of my favourite authors is a man called Adrian Plass, who I've mentioned many times before. He's got a great book uh, on the Gospel of Mark called Never Mind the Reversing Ducks. And when he looks at this particular passage, he says, almost all useful Christians have undergone serious heart surgery. And that's what we see here as Peter breaks down and cries, this is open heart surgery for Peter. This is Peter realising how weak he really is. How in himself he didn't have the the strength to be faithful and and true like Jesus. And this is Peter realising how much he needed God. But you know what the good news of this passage is to me? Is that even this Peter is the rock on which Christ built his church. It's not our performance that counts. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. It is God's grace, it is Jesus' grace giving himself to die for our sake. And that's what Peter needed. That's what we need. You know, because of Jesus' trial, Peter's failure was forgiven. And if Peter could be forgiven, isn't that grace? Anna Marie.